What is going on, everyone? Welcome to the Taming the Financial Chaos podcast, where we embrace uncertainty, we embrace the chaos, because we are working to establish control. My name is Matt McCoy. I'm a financial advisor and a certified financial planning professional out of Greensboro, North Carolina. The name of my practice is Principles of Financial Planning. You can find us online at principles with an L-E of financialplanning.com. That's principles with an L-E of financialplanning.com. Well, hello there, everyone. How in the world are you? I hope you've been doing well. Welcome back to the Taming the Financial Chaos podcast. We are getting started today with uh, part two of our multi-part series on ESG investing. Uh, In case you missed part one, I'd I'd recommend going back and listen to that episode uh, first. It was the one that immediately precedes this one. But in in case you missed that one and you're not going to take my advice, that's okay. Uh, In that episode, we introduced the, the concept of ESG investing and basically define some of the fundamentals of what it is, uh, how it works and what it means. Uh, we also talked about a specific example of ESG being in the news relatively recently, uh, in the hopes of better understanding, uh, what it means to apply ESG, uh, investing in, in our world and, and the way we might define our world, at least in the conventional sense is that we live in a world that is basically embraced and lived by uh, the fiduciary standard when it comes to investing. Uh, So talked about ESG in that context, uh, and more specifically, uh, the news we discussed had to do with uh, ESG investing in the context of retirement plans. Um, Given that that's what we covered last time, a natural next step to take here in part two would seem to be to talk about the investments themselves. Uh, so in other words, what ESG investments are out there? What, what, what's available uh, for us as consumers, as investors, uh, to be able to invest in? Now, suppose the first thing to know about what ESG investments are out there is that this is predominantly the domain of mutual funds and ETFs. Uh, According to the U.S. Sustainable Investment Forum, there are 645 ESG mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. And if you do a quick search uh, to see what funds are out there, you'll find that there really aren't uh, any asset classes or economic sectors that, uh, that aren't represented within ESG investments. Granted, it's probably fair to say that there are certain companies or sectors that are favored or disfavored. Uh, But the simple fact that there are over 140 firms, as we discussed last time, that offer proprietary ESG scores, that means that there are over 140 different methodologies uh, that are represented by those scores. And 140 different methodologies would seem to leave plenty of room uh, for just about any company or sector to be included. Now, I'm going to hit pause for a second because I mentioned the U.S. Sustainable Investment Forum, but I didn't explain who they are. Uh, But frankly, I think the name of the organization basically speaks for itself, especially if you understand that the word sustainable is used almost synonymously with ESG or or is used frequently enough to refer to a fund or investment of an ESG caliber, let's say. Now, along those lines, one of the articles that I sourced for this podcast uh, referenced a problem that exists with the words used by investment managers to signal their adherence to ESG standards and principles. Now, forgive me, I'm probably going to butcher this name, but Asad Razouk, 
the CEO of Gurren Energy, wrote an article that was published on ecobusiness.com on April 4th, 2021, uh, titled ESG investing today is somewhere between a joke and a scam. We need to act fast. And one of the things that Mr. Razuk covered in his article was something called greenwashing. Now, again, let me, let me hit pause real quick because who or what is Gurren Energy? Now, Gurren Energy describes itself in part as a, quote, Singapore-headquartered renewable energy developer focused on the development, ownership, and operation of wind and solar energy projects, close quotes. So we're dealing with a company here that is firmly within what I think most of us would consider the ESG realm, so to speak. But moving on, what is greenwashing? Well, greenwashing is basically the practice of marketing yourself or your fund as being ESG-friendly or compliant, but without making the substantive changes uh, to back up the marketing claims. So in other words, you adopt a name or a title, what have you, for your fund that signals, hey, I'm ESG compliant or I'm ESG focused. But the actual holdings within your portfolio or the way in which your portfolio is managed does not reflect the same. In his article, Mr. Razuk notes that, quote, 253 funds switched to an ESG focus in 2020, close quotes. Of those, 87% rebranded by changing their names to include something that reflected their new focus. And here are some words that Razuk noted as having been used to indicate this new focus. Sustainable, ESG itself, green, and climate. Now, that's great and all, but if we're talking about the practice of greenwashing in this context, well, there's just one problem. And according to Mr. Razuk, none of the 253 funds that switched to, to have an ESG focus actually changed any of their holdings. Now, I suppose someone could say uh, or argue that the fact they didn't change any of their holdings indicates that they were already ESG compliant. But if they were compliant, why would Mr. Razuk feel compelled to make an issue of it? So it would seem that Mr. Razuk has basically provided us with evidence of greenwashing. And to me, the natural next question would be, well, why would greenwashing even be a thing? In other words, why would an investment fund make a change in name only? The answer to that, or at least part of the answer, might be found in another article that I came across. In October of 2021, an article appeared on advisorperspectives.com titled Stop the ESG Nonsense. Now, here comes another name that, unfortunately, I'm probably going to butcher, but this article was written by Michael Edesis. Now, who is that? Well, according to the website of m1kllc.com, which is a financial services firm with, quote, expertise in renewable energy, close quote, he is a mathematician and economist with expertise in finance, energy, and sustainable development. Among other things, he serves as a managing partner and special advisor to M1K LLC. He's also an adjunct associate professor and visiting faculty in the Environment and Sustainability Division and Finance Department at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Uh, and he's a research associate for the EDHEC Risk Institute. Now, EDHEC is an acronym comprised of French words that translates to School of Higher Education and Business Administration. And their mission statement from, from the website states, the mission of EDHEC Risk Climate Impact Institute 
is to help private and public decision makers manage climate-related financial risks and make the best use of financial tools to support the transition to low emissions and climate-resilient economies. In this article, Edesis asserts that ESG investing has exploded. And I would say that from my vantage point, that's a fair assertion. Uh, in the sense that it went from being mentioned you know, here and there to being the basis for a multitude of seemingly new investments. Edessus also asserts that one of the main driving factors behind this explosion are the fees associated with ESG investing. In other words, investment firms are eager to offer ESG investments just to be able to collect higher fees. Here's a passage from his article. Investment management firms have faced a sharp drop in fees over the last two or three decades. Average mutual fund expense ratios have more than halved due mainly to the increased popularity of low-cost index funds. ESG investing provides a reason, one might say, an excuse to charge higher fees. It is a, quote, active, close quote, strategy. It requires research on companies that are candidates for an investment portfolio. Another article supports Edessa's hypothesis on fees. This article appeared on planadvisor.com on October 26, 2021, and the title is Morningstar Finds ESG Funds Are More Expensive Than Conventional Funds. In the article, they discuss a study that was performed by Morningstar to evaluate the fees of ESG funds and compared those fees to conventional funds. Here are a couple lines from the article that that covered the study that Morningstar performed. Investors in sustainable funds are paying a, quote, greenium, close quote, relative to investors in conventional funds. The study found a higher asset-weighted average expense ratio for environmental, social, and governance funds, in parentheses, 0.61%, compared with their traditional peers, in parentheses, 0.41%. Now, I suppose a 0.2% difference doesn't sound terribly egregious, but when you consider the fact that these funds involve the management of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, fees certainly add up. So if we are dealing with a multitude of funds that have shifted focus and name only, and if they have done so for the purpose of collecting higher fees, this would seem to be an obvious problem. Going back to the first article that I referenced by Assad Razouk, he compounds this issue with some specific points that he highlights. First, he states that significantly relevant points of evaluation are left out of ESG considerations. Here's one line from the article that gives an example. Deforestation is a major driver of climate change, and while 78% of mutual fund providers offer ESG investments, none specifically excluded deforestation risk. Not a single one actively priced in climate risk either. Now, keep Razouk's point about climate risk in mind because we're going to revisit that here in just a little bit. Something else that Razouk points out is hypocrisy within the ESG realm. One example he cites, and I'm probably going to continue the trend of butchering names here, but is that of BNP, Boy Nancy Paul, Paribas. And here's another passage from his article. BNP Paribas the largest bank in the Eurozone, never wastes an opportunity to boast of its green credentials. It's also the world's top banker of offshore oil and gas over the last five years and managed to increase fossil fuel lending since the Paris Agreement. So obviously what he's highlighting there is the simple fact that you have a bank that is boasting 
of its activity within the ESG realm while simultaneously playing its own role in the use of fossil fuels by not only being the world's top banker of offshore oil and gas, but also increasing the lending that it does within the fossil fuel industry. Now, at this point, I'm going to pivot a bit. Um, I'm going to get away from, you might say, what other people have to say about ESG funds. So I'm going to leave the articles that we've talked about uh, behind a little bit. But I think what we're going to discuss piggybacks nicely uh, off of what the, the articles had to say. And specifically, what I want to get into is an insight that while I can't claim to have arrived at it on my own, I've done a little work that I'll share with you here to basically verify it. But before I get into the details of that, I wanted to take a little time and establish a principle or two uh, that are applicable here. And where I would start with that is just with a, a basic paradigm. And the specific paradigm I've got in mind is that of problems and solutions. And so what I'm referring to with that is basically understanding the things around you uh, in terms of whether they can be characterized as a problem or a solution. Now, it seems we live in a time that solutions are basically plentiful. And what I mean by that is just simply the sheer number of goods and services that are available for us to, to be able to purchase. And, you know, if you pay attention to the marketing uh, around goods and services, I think you'll, you'll basically pick up on the fact that they are pitched as solutions. So whether it's the fact that your car doesn't offer a comfortable enough ride, your TV's picture isn't clear enough, uh, or your hair isn't smooth enough thanks to your shampoo, that's the kind of messaging that I'm referring to. The reason why that kind of marketing could be said to be so effective or why it's so pervasive and perceived to be uh, so effective is because none of us like problems. All of us, all of us want solutions. All of us want a, a trouble-free or stress-free life. Managing or eliminating problems would obviously go a long way toward achieving that. But if you're going to pitch something as a solution, then the reality is the problem for which that thing is the solution must exist first. And the fact that problem exists must be readily apparent to the person who might consume the good or service that you're offering, even if you've got to do a little work to convince them that the problem exists. Hello, marketing. And when it comes to problems, when it comes to, to that marketing, the more you can amplify the negative emotions around that issue, and particularly the emotion of fear, the more convincing you most likely can be. Now, the implications of all of that are pretty interesting to say the least, because what it essentially means is that there are some folks out there who are making purchases not because they've discovered a problem and they've gone in search of a solution, but because they've been told they have a problem. Now, maybe it turns out the consumer agrees, and I suppose you can make the argument that the consumer does agree, otherwise they wouldn't have made the purchase, but do they agree because they've applied their own independent thought? Or have they substituted someone else's rationale for their own? And to take that just a little bit further, if they didn't recognize the problem on their own, how dire of an issue are they really dealing with? But beyond that, if we would say that somebody's made a purchase because they've been convinced that they have a problem, then we could also basically say that the problem-solution paradigm has basically been reversed. So in other words, solutions have been produced that are in need of a problem. 
And if that is in fact the case, then we might look to marketing and say, well, there's our solution to needing a problem. Welcome to consumerism. Now, the insight I'm going to share with you specifically revolves around the E in the ESG. So we're talking about the environment or climate change in particular. If you were to go out and conduct a simple internet search, you will find there are plenty of articles uh, that warn of the consequences of climate change. And in particular, they warn of economic consequences. Now, the simple fact that these warnings exist is evidence enough to establish that there are plenty of folks who see the potential for climate change to have an economic impact. So we're not going to get into the details contained within those warnings. But we can also say that the simple fact that ESG funds exist is evidence of how significant the problem is perceived to be, at least in the investment world. So it's significant enough that it apparently warranted the creation of new investment strategies. Well, if we would say that something, anything, is going to have a negative economic impact, well, that simply means that the impact will manifest itself in the form of a cost, not a benefit. And in the financial realm, we call such a thing a risk. And in case you aren't familiar with my definition of risk, I define it as something that can exact a cost on financial resources and potentially result in you not having the money you need when you need it. Looked at from that perspective, we could say that many see climate change as having the potential to exact a cost on the economy, potentially resulting in some folks not having what they need when they need it. And if we are dealing with true needs in that context, then we're talking about things like food, water, clothing, etc. Things that are critical or vital for life. And so if folks can't obtain those things, that potentially means that lives are at stake. And frankly, I don't know that we can identify a risk or a threat that we would characterize as being more severe than something that puts lives at risk. Now, what's interesting about investment funds like mutual funds and ETFs is that you don't have to guess at what the managers of such funds see as risks. They tell you, or at least they do in theory. The way they do this is via prospectus. And every fund must issue a prospectus. Now, for those who are unfamiliar, a prospectus is essentially just a document or booklet uh, that's intended to be the ultimate resource for understanding an investment fund. The information they contain is dictated by law, with the aim being to give investors a reliable and exhaustive source of information about a fund. Well, part of the information that a prospectus must contain pertains to risks. And specifically, there is a section within each prospectus that is dedicated exclusively to the manager listing the principal risks to the fund. So given what we've established about risk, one way to understand the things that are found in this section is that they are the primary factors that a manager has identified as having the potential to cause negative or inferior performance. And the reason such performance might result is because the risk has been realized which ultimately means that a cost has been sustained. But just to back up a bit and, and go back to our problem-solution paradigm, one way to understand ESG funds and strategies is that they are solutions. And if they are solutions, then the problems they seek to address are those related to ESG factors. Further, as we also established, problems precede solutions. So given that, it might be reasonable to expect that the firms that have created ESG funds identified the problems related to ESG factors first. 
And assuming that is true, then we might expect that these issues will be among the list of risks in the prospectuses of funds that preceded the advent of ESG funds. Well, again, our focus here is on the E in ESG. And what I can tell you is that over the years, I've reviewed numerous prospectuses and not once have I come across any mention of climate change or anything synonymous in the principal risk section of a prospectus. But we're not going to just leave that there, though. Remember what I said about revisiting Mr. Razook's comments about ESG funds not pricing and climate risk. Well, I took the step of pulling prospectuses for something like 30 to 40 ESG funds and covered about 10 to 15 different firms in doing so. And when I reviewed the principal risk section of those prospectuses, not a single one of the prospectuses that I reviewed included climate change as a principal risk. Now, to be perfectly frank, I don't know exactly what that means, and your guess is probably as, as good as mine. But at minimum, it would seem to be fair to say that we have a contradiction on our hands. On one hand, we apparently have problems associated with ESG factors that are of such a magnitude that a whole category of funds was created to address these problems. But on the other hand, the dominant ESG factor, at least in terms of headlines and policy, is not significant enough to include as a principal risk? To contrast this a bit, there was one type of risk that I found exclusively in the principal risks of ESG funds. This particular risk I'm referencing, you might call it ESG risk. Simply put, this is the risk that an ESG fund might underperform its non-ESG peers or benchmarks that don't take into account ESG factors. Why might this be? Well, one way to answer that might be to say that an evaluation of an investment on the basis of ESG factors is not the same thing as evaluating an investment exclusively on the basis of factors that define its risk-reward prospects. In other words, a strict fiduciary evaluation. Now, if you are hearing echoes of the potential for conflict that we discussed in our previous podcast, I can't say that I blame you. But all of this raises an honest question, at least for me. Did ESG investing come about because it is the proper solution to a proper problem that existed first, or is it a solution in search of a problem, complete with the marketing that we typically associate with consumerism? And is part of the problem the fact that we have become so accustomed to that type of marketing and maybe even desensitized? Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Taming the Financial Chaos podcast. Just a quick reminder that you can find more information and resources uh, about my practice online at principles with an LE of financialplanning.com. That's principles with an LE of financialplanning.com. I hope you will join us next time. And until then, take care and stay healthy. advisory services are offered through Lincoln Financial Securities Corporation, member SIPC. Insurance is offered through Lincoln Affiliates and other companies. Lincoln Financial Securities and Principles of Financial Planning are separate entities. Lincoln Financial Securities and its representatives do not offer tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult their tax or legal professionals regarding their specific circumstances.